Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Boxing history time, my friends, as always, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator, and also just a fellow fight history maniac like myself, Eris. What's up, bro? How are you? Doing good, my friend. How's everything on your end? Doing all right, man. You know, I wish that uh, we did not have to talk about something a little bit somber and sad to begin the show, because we do have some more fun stuff after that. But unfortunately, uh, yesterday we learned that esteemed referee and really boxing icon Mills Lane passed away. So we had to say a little something. You know, we got to say something. Absolutely, man. Mills Lane is one of those guys that he he was an icon in the sport. Absolutely. And an all-time great referee, but even more so than that, Mills Lane somehow, as a boxing referee, I mean, he was a colorful personality, but he trans he transformed into sort of like a pop icon, pop culture icon in the late 90s, which is interesting because that was like, you know, mainly crash television. That was like WWE, the Jerry Springer era, like a lot of crazy shit going on. And the, and in boxing, it seemed like Mills Lane was always in the center of all the crazy shit was going down. I mean, he was he was a great referee. He was a former fighter from early on. Um, he tried. He he almost made the 1960 Olympic team, which meant he would have been um, on the same uh, team with Muhammad Ali, um, Wilbert Skeeter McClure, Eddie Crook, guys. You know, very solid esteemed class. Anyways, um, so he had a very solid amateur career. Former Marine, just a no frills, very tough guy. They didn't take shit from anybody, and even though he was small in stature, people whoop your ass like just always you know took care of himself and then that translated into the ring you know because like he was a guy that wouldn't be shit from anybody and even though he was small his specialty was heavyweights you know he worked every division he worked a number of julian jackson fights if you watch the highlights of jackson's knocking out guys into another orbit mills is usually the one collecting the pieces after that but well, jackson fought in uh in nevada so many times and it's like you know mills was just all around nevada totally there. totally, totally. and um but Mills' specialty, it seemed, was always heavyweights, you know what I mean? And he was always, especially in the 90s, um, his first big fight, of course, was Larry Holmes versus Jerry Cooney. And that being such a big event and everything like that, I think that was the time when he first um, came up with the coin the monkey or let's get it on because he knew he needed to just say something to set up the event and all that and just knew what was, you know, um, the atmosphere and how big of an event this actually was. It was one of the biggest ones of all time, still remains that way. And, um, but after that fight, you know, he remained, go ahead. Was he the first one? Was he the first referee to have, I'm pretty sure he was the first one to like coin a phrase, right? Cause that was right around the time when like, right after that, all of them started trying to come up with their own job. Fair, but firm, you remember yeah, what yeah, I yeah, say, yeah. you must obey and all this type of shit. And it was like, man, you guys are getting it. You guys are getting a little out there now. You're just like looking for rhymes and shit oh. to say. 
And that was when so he started it. Absolutely. Not only that, I think he was like you said, he started it. And he also did a thing when he was being announced in the ring. If you notice one with like this nose. And I remember when people asked him about that, that was him saying hello to either his family or somebody, a friend or whoever it was, but he would always do that to reference them. And so it's like Carol um, Burnett used to do that on her, on her show. She used to tug her ear. Yeah. There's oh yeah. There's always like a little thing people would do to kind of like, um, you know, reference family members or let them know what's going on on television. But um, yeah, by the nineties, that's when Mills like really started like coming into the atmosphere, not only just boxing, but like, being known outside of the sport too, because he was always in the center of crazy shit. It just happened to be that way. Um, for example, Fan Man, you know, Bow Holyfield, uh, the second Bow Holyfield fight. Imagine being the third man in the ring and seeing that crazy ass paraglider dude coming down from there, crashing through the set through, and then you have to be at the center of that to command all attention, stop the fight, and try to make sure all hell doesn't break loose, which was just about to break loose. Dude, he it always seemed in like with the nineties too, there was always some shit going on. Like, and yeah. there were so many crazy things that happened just like overall. And he's, it always seemed like wherever you looked, like that's, he was, he was, he was there. He was, he was almost always involved in some shit, you know, it was pretty amazing. But um, yeah, I think that also what's pretty much equally as amazing as how famous he became and how big a celebrity he became <laughs> celebrity death match. You know what I mean? Like he he had his own thing on there. He was voicing that for a while until he got ill in the early 2000s. You know, he was a cultural phenomena, not just in boxing, but outside of boxing too. But even before that, a lot of the stuff that people don't know is really amazing too. Like you mentioned that he had fought earlier on and he almost made it to the 1960 Olympics. He won the NCAA welterweight championship. Uh, 1960 and winning the NCAA welterweight championship then qualified him for the Olympic trials. And mm -hmm. so he didn't wind up going farther, but nonetheless, you know, he, he was a high ranking amateur at welterweight, uh, you know, and that was after his stint in, in the Marines. So, yeah. And on top of that, uh, I'm, this is not a book plug at all, but just because I learned a lot about him, in order to write about Reno, to learn about the Reno boxing scene and stuff like that for the book about Oscar Bonavena. But he was involved in not just the, a bunch of legal stuff there, but he was involved in a bunch of boxing shit in Reno too, when boxing was just kind of first starting to come about or whatever in Reno. Um, the scene was not very big, especially because Las Vegas was not that far away and Las Vegas was flourishing in a different way. And in any case, um, you know, uh, that mob story with Oscar Bonavena and Joe Conforte, Mills Lane was actually one of the prosecutors who was involved in the Joe Conforte case and trying to figure out what happened to Oscar Bonavena, who killed him, what for, etc. And he was one of just to kind of circle it back around to his character, to Mills Lane's character. He was an honest dude. He was a no-nonsense dude. I'm not going to say he always made the correct call, but nonetheless, he was honest about the calls that he made and why. And just like in boxing, uh, <laughs> during that case, when everybody's trying to figure out what the fuck happened to Oscar Bonavena, and it started to really come to light how uh, dirty Reno was as a result of its involvement with Joe Conforte, Mills Lane was basically put on this case 
but the people that put him on the case like limited his power. And he was like, well, if you're going to put me on this fucking case, you're going to need to give me like, I'm going to need to fucking call a grand jury for this. I'm going to need to subpoena this person. I need these records. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're just trying to give the appearance that we want to find out here, you know, because I think that the whole point was that uh, as people started understanding how deep Joe Conforte's involvement in Reno was, they were like, holy shit, like everybody looks bad. And Mills Lane didn't care. He wanted to just get to, he wanted to do the job he was told to do. And he was honest about it. And he was basically like, look, dude, I'm being handcuffed here. I can't do this. And he said, and he went to reporters and said that shit. He wasn't afraid to, you know, to, to say what it was. Whereas a lot of people really hush hush about it. And that's how Mills Lane was. So uh, it's really unfortunate that not only did we lose that yesterday, but we, uh, we really lost it about 20 years ago when he had a stroke uh, in, in 2002 and he lost a lot of his, you know, uh, abilities to communicate and he needed to be taken was, care of. What's that? Really, I said it was sudden too, because he was still very vibrant before that. Like he had his promotional company. Um, he had the television show. Um, I think he was already retired as a referee at that point. Wasn't he? I think so. Yeah. Well, he was still active. Yeah, he was still active doing, uh, like he was a judge, like a judge judge, not just, you know, and we talked about that earlier, like a bunch of celebrities around this time started doing all their, dude, they like were fucking Mills Lanes was a, was like a trendsetter, bro. This fool was a pioneer. So yeah, um, a lot of other people after he was, uh, had his judge show started trying to do the same thing, not realizing that he was like an actual judge, (laughs) you know, he, he like knew law and shit. He wasn't just some guy who was a celebrity. So yeah, um, boxing icon, somebody who definitely was bigger than the bouts he refereed, bigger than the things that he accomplished as an amateur and a pro fighter too. So that's a, it's a loss for the sport for sure. Very much so, man. And, you know, condolences to his family. Um, my buddies, Terry and Tommy, his two kids, um, who over the years after Mills, you know, took ill for the whole family. I mean, they just did an amazing job taking care of him and just making sure he was as comfortable as he could be over the years and all that. And um, the year Mills got inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame, I unfortunately couldn't attend that year. But, um, you know, even though he was ailing and everything like that, Mills was still very vibrant. He was very proud to be there. And he was even signing autographs and, like, just being active, you know? Yeah, he still seemed like he was pushing it to like oh, everything yeah. he can oh. do, you know? I mean, which that just sounds like, what you would expect yeah and you know his two boys too um terry and tommy they have some incredible stories of as they were just young kids and they used to travel with their dad imagine that mills land is your dad and you're traveling all over the country for big paper you know big events that he was going to work and you and you're just there meeting everybody that was their childhood so yeah the stuff that we're talking about like they're roughly our age so yeah. they the things that we saw, you know, they probably saw far more firsthand or a lot more close up or the Absolutely. you know the aftermath and stuff like that. So I think they're at the bite fight actually. I have to ask them again, but I think they might have been at the bite fight. Wild is, stuff, dude. I posted that I posted a video yesterday about that when Mills was being interviewed immediately after the fight. And um, you know, it's most famous one of his most ah, famous bullshit. Yeah, because he said that to Tyson, bullshit, and you bet him, you know, right after that. But um, I had never seen this clip until yesterday because I just Googled Mills Lane bullshit, and then this came up. And it was this goofy reporter, why don't you stop the fight? All, like, incredulously. <laughs> and Mills has the best comment. He just looks at him. He was like, um, 
how many times should a man get bit? He was like, there's a limit. He was like, oh, God damn limit. limit every- you know? <laughs> even even bites. Like, it was almost like he's scolding one of his kids. Like, God damn limit to everything, you know? Including bites. Like, matter of fact, like, what the fuck do you mean, dude? You want me to just let it go? He got bit twice. What else am I going to do? <laughs> I'm like... It's like I'm like in the garage doing the laundry and my wife walks in and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what What the fuck else would I be doing standing in front of the washing machine? It's like the same shit. You know, like, what? Why did you stop the fight? Why wouldn't I stop the fight? What? What? You almost felt like Mills wanted to slap him for that comment. Like, he didn't even look at him. He looked at him incredulously, answered him, and pointed at him. And then, He's like, oh, you really want me to speak to you like you're six? I will. <laughs> and then when the guy was like, well, what about the headbutt? He was like, bullshit. Unintentional bull- bullshit. Call that that. And then he just ignored him after that. <laughs> uh, I mean, was just, that was a crazy time because I was this all the same year? Um, you had the Lewis, you had the Lewis, um, Lewis McCall, second, uh, the second fight fiasco when McCall had the nervous breakdown. And Mills was the referee for that one. You had Tyson Holyfield, and then you had Lewis Akinwande. And Mills was the referee for that one too. People forget that fight because it was just so oh, awful, dude. But he was so no, bizarre. Mills. Like he would not let go. He no, Mills was I, like, yeah. And he Mills. It is such a funny scene because poor Mills is so tiny, and you see it between these two Goliaths, like he's screaming at him, "Let go! Let go! Let go! Get it! Let him go!" Like, Finally, oh my god, was, you just see he just his head is about to explode. Mills Lane, that is, and he's like, Fuck yeah, this. I just, like, I just oh, don't think I've ever know. even seen anything like that before oh. or since where somebody just wouldn't let go. Like, and so I don't even know how he was able to keep on going for a few more <laughs> years after that. Because, on in all honesty, Pat, if I had to go through that type of trauma in one year and major fights, I'm not sure if I'd want to go with that in my career. I'm pretty sure I'd be jinxed. <laughs> I would be, I would definitely be questioning, like, is it me? Like, is it? Is this is this me? I bring this energy. Like, what is this? Yeah, you know? what is this? And that's that's another crazy thing, dude. Before we move on, is that like you're talking about his specialty was heavyweights, and I remember like when they matched Lewis and Tyson. I I know, I know, but when they matched Lewis and Tyson in 2002, they're like, oh, you know, this has a lot of potential for getting out of hand. We need a big referee. You know, we need somebody who's like Jay Nady, who's like six six or six four or whatever he is, and big lurch fucking idiot and (laughs) big fan here big fan but they're like oh we need a big referee and blah 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 who can handle this and stuff like that but it's too bad that mills lane's not in there so they wound up getting eddie cotton who also himself was like a massive dude he's like six seven or some shit and so point being that like this that's a normal conversation for like big heavyweight fights you know like we need somebody who's physical we need somebody who's big back in the day it was like we need Five six Mills Lane, yeah. <laughs> Five six former Marine Mills Lane who shoved Bernard Hopkins out of the ring and separated the tendon on his fucking ankle. Uh, well, that, actually, no. So I guess I got to revise what I was saying because they wouldn't let go. Like how can one day those fucking guys? Bad insane. matchup. But take this into account too: how respected Mills was, Mills was, especially with heavyweights. When Lennox Lewis, Tommy Morrison took place in Atlantic City, Mills who was primarily, you know, it was a Nevada-based referee, was ba- was put in that fight. It wasn't a title fight either because, you know, referees get moved to title fights or whatever. But Mills, who was a Nevada referee, was specifically chosen to referee that fight in Atlantic City because he was known to work with heavyweights and knew that he'd be able to, to handle shit for that. 
Yeah. And that, well, and I remember him calling that too for Tommy Morrison because Tommy Morrison's eyes started blowing up and he was just getting beaten yeah. up. But he was just like, dude, what? No, stop. And I remember Tommy's face like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Get my ass. Yep. And then soon after that, Tommy um, tested positive for HIV. And then Mills came out too. And he was like, I wasn't that worried about the same time. He was bleeding everywhere. And he was like, I just, you know, got to make sure I was okay. <laughs> yeah, man. Crazy. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate also that we he hadn't been on the scene for the last few decades, but yeah, cultural icon in the boxing world, man. Serious. So he's Arian Pompey actually had the celebrity death mass, uh, his clay statue, I think, at their at their place in Nevada. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's definitely awesome. Well, he'll be missed, dude. So yep. yeah, rest in peace for sure. And so I'm sure that uh maybe one day we'll be able to get a hold of one of these kids and get some stories from or something like that. But in the meanwhile, we have some, I guess not so much stories of our own. We've got some boxing history to talk about. So the subject today was actually somebody had DM'd me and they had suggested this topic and I suggested it to Eris and he was like, yeah, hell yeah. It's a good topic. Um, I don't know what you would call it. I guess fighters who kind of had the antidote had the number of some other fighter or, I think the the key component for me here, generally speaking, is that one fighter who is not thought of as great as another fighter, but nonetheless still beat them usually more than once. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know how else you would really shorten that, but fighters who had the number of another fighter. Very interesting topic, for sure. Always is, man, because when there's always, it doesn't matter who it is in boxing, you can be the greatest fighter of all time. There's always going to be a guy out there whose style just gives you nightmares for whatever reason, you know what I mean? And even variations of that same style, even might not be the same exact thing, is still going to give you trouble. But it's just that one particular dude that you just can't do anything with him, you know? And even if you might be able to score a victory over him, chances are it's going to be ugly, it's not going to be easy, and anytime you get in there, it's going to be a nightmare. So keep that in mind too. It isn't guys like some of these guys, they've ended up getting victories over there, over, um, you know, their kryptonite more or less, but like, um, they just something about them. You know what I mean? It's a B side sometimes. And even so it doesn't have to necessarily be a guy that isn't as that's not deemed as good as the, the person that they beat. There's even like, you know, top tier guys that just certain styles they can't do anything with, you know? And, um, that being said, the first one I'm going to break up is actually like a triple header from the welterweights of the uh, early 2000s. So when you think about it like this, because all these guys had the the first one starting out, there's going to be Shane Mosley, Oscar De La Hoya. Because Shane basically from the amateurs into the pros always had Oscar's number, regardless of how you looked at their second fight. And then from there, you got Shane Mosley in his script night, Vernon Forrest, who from the amateurs always had Mosley's number and then the pros are kind of really same way. And then from there, you got Vernon Forrest and Ricardo Mayorga. <laughs> yep. And then from there, you got Ricardo Mayorga and just giving the guy money at all. Yeah. <laughs> Mayorga <laughs> just became the B side to everybody to kick his ass after that. Poor guy. Mayorga. I hope he's doing well. I truly do. But it really was an interesting, uh, I guess, you know, triangle or however you want to structure that as yeah. far as, the, you know, it's, it, that's when we talk about the three year period from 2000 to around 2003. And we, we talk about styles making fights 
and whatnot and how you look at these kind of like linear equations like well if fight if fighter b beat fighter a and fighter c beat fighter b therefore fighter c can beat fighter a, you know and we already know it does not work like that whatsoever and when you start mixing and matching it gets interesting and that's exactly what wound up happening unfortunately we didn't wind up seeing a little bit more variation uh like at least until later on we wound up seeing mosley mayorga when it was a little bit less important and Mayorga was a little bit more used up and whatnot. And I guess, you know, yeah, De La Hoya washed Mayorga pretty good, but uh, one of the ones that we were missing and that I remember they had talked about this fight for like, maybe like a year, year and a half or so, but I just don't think that Oscar De La Hoya was up for it. And that was Vernon Forrest. Like they talked about, all right, well, is Vernon Forrest going to get his shot at De La Hoya? And I know Vernon Forrest wanted it. And of course, why wouldn't he? Everybody wanted the sweepstakes. But it just wound up never happening, unfortunately. And I don't know that that would have been a very good style for Oscar. And it probably wouldn't have been a very fun fight either. Nah. Forrest, I mean, he was a good fighter and he was a sharp fighter. But sometimes his style made for ugly fights, depending on who he was fighting. Um, the way it all started out, when you think about it, right? In the early, in around 2000, Shane Mosley, I remember it was. It was, I was on a Friday Night Fights when I found out it was, it was announced that they said that Mo- it was like the end of the year of 99. And they said, just ran- they, they announced that Mosley was going to be vacating the lightweight crown and looking to move up uh, to fight um, Oscar. He was going to just bypass Junior Welterweight and just go straight into the to the lion's den. And it's more or less what he did because first, remember, he moved up and the first guy he fought was Wilfredo Rivera, who was the perennial contender and fought everybody at that point. Very, very hard-nosed guy. And um, gave Mosley a really good fight too before Mosley... Um, he became the first guy to actually knock him out, not just stop him. And then after that, Mosley fought Willie Wise, I believe, right? And, and um, the Rivera fight was on like, it was on something weird. Like it was on like Fox or... I think it was on HBO. Was it? Yeah, Mosley did, when he was lightweight champion, Mosley fought on random... It might have been on like on a weird day or something like that. But I just remember there was something strange about the scheduling. But go ahead, anyway. But... Yeah, mostly, you know, when he was a lightweight, he fought on, like, TNT and, like, USA and other random networks, but that fight was on HBO, and then he fought Willie Wise, I believe, because Wise had just come off the Chavez victory, a big upset on that one, and so that kind of, you know, Wise got massacred against Mosley, so those two victories kind of bounced Mosley into, the, you know, the De La Hoya fight, and that was obviously, as you know, Pat, you were living out there during that time, and that was huge, huge for the West Coast, right? Man. It was pretty massive. I mean, <clears throat> Oscar De La Hoya, obviously big among um, just in, in Southern California in general. Like he was already pretty big just overall, but but especially big, generally speaking, among a lot of just, I guess, the Hispanic population in Southern California. Although, I mean, we talked about this on a different podcast episode as far as the kind of intricacies of that. But nonetheless, yeah. He was a name. He was somebody everybody knew. Either liked him or didn't like him. I think, generally speaking, a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of women liked him. But it was huge. And the fact that Shane Mosley, also from Southern California, and also had kind of like made his name in the gyms. And he, and the reason why a lot of this was interesting with Willie Weiss and Chavez and shit like that, was because years before both Oscar De La Hoya and Shane Mosley had made a little bit of a name for themselves, both of them sparring against Julio Cesar Chavez. Yeah. When he was, I don't, I I can't even remember what fights, you know, 
It was around was, 19, I want to say it was around like 1990, 91. It was like early, early. Yeah, I mean, they were young. And yeah. young enough that people were like, oh my gosh, these kids are doing great against them. And it wasn't like everybody was. It's just that they were special talents, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I remember, obviously not that far back, but in the 90s, that, that was kind of included in the mythology of both of them or whatever. And so that was kind of interesting to kind of now see that come full circle a little bit and play out. And so you have these guys who were between De La Hoya and Mosley, like these were supposed to be the next Southern California stars and shit. And we talked about that in, a, in another episode too, with the, the teen idols and whatnot that, that tied into a lot of this kind of conversation, the Southern California shit. So yeah, it was huge, dude. It was really, really big. And, you know, Mosley as the lightweight champion, he was, no one had seen anything kind of like that since the days of Roberto Duran. Um, I'm not talking about pure dominance because Whitaker came before him and was even more dominant. But I mean, I'm just talking about like, fero just ferocious. Like Mosley made eight title defenses against, you know, varying levels of opposition. Some guys like Jesse James Leha and um, uh, John John Molina, for example, were more elite as opposed to guys like, I don't know, Demetrio Sabalos or something like that. But Anyways, Mosley knocked out all of his competition at lightweight, and he was just a dominant force. And so when he was going to move up to welterweight to fight Oscar, like, that was a dream fight for a lot of people. And especially on the West Coast, considering their rivalry as amateurs and... And him skipping 140 was like... Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a big leap. True, true. And they just, you know, it looked like he had the build for it, too. I mean, we found out also there's a little bit of enhancement later on, but um, he he filled out well. So when the fight happened with Oscar, I mean, that was one of the great welterweight fights of that era, too, man. Probably the best one. Um, What everyone had hoped was going to be, was what everyone had hoped would have happened with Oscar and Tito more or less happened with Oscar and Shane, except there was, like, no, like, multiple knockdowns traded or anything like that. Um, they were just toe-to-toe, -to -toe, man, swinging, but Mosley just was just a little bit faster, just a little bit on the trigger, and Oscar really couldn't complain about the decision, like, you know, he fought his heart out, and it was a legitimately close fight, but Mosley just, you know, was just a step ahead the whole way, and as he beat him, how many, I don't know how many times he beat him in the amateurs, I think it was like once or twice or whatever, but like, it's the same thing happened again, that just, you know, the way it portrayed in the, in the, in the pro scene, it looked like Mosley had his number because it wasn't really a close fight. Like it was close, but it was, it was nothing controversial about it, you know? And that catapulted Mosley right away to the number one spot in boxing right there. He became, you know, daddy Warbucks. He was the head guy and um, the biggest star. I mean, the pound for pound best in, in the world. I wouldn't call him the biggest star. Oscar was still obviously bigger than him, but like Mosley was definitely pound for pound number one. And he solidified that by knocking the living shit out of the guys that he was defending against afterwards too. Like um, Adrian Stone, for example, who just got, you know, blasted into another uh, dimension. And um, I'm not sure, I forgot who else he defended against. Uh, the guy from Australia, Shannon Taylor. Yeah, Shannon Taylor. Maybe someone else too, I'm not sure. But Mosley was just beating the hell out of these dudes left and right, right? Antonio Diaz was another one. So after that, when the Mos when um, Vernon Forrest fight was getting discussed... Vernon Forrest at that point was one of those longtime contenders. And like you kind of alluded to, Pat, no one was really itching to fight him because he long, lanky style, um, couldn't really get next to him. Very, very good boxer, knew how to hold just his whole style was just awkward and hard for anyone to fight. You know what I mean? And he was undefeated for a number of years, um, featured a few times on television. But anytime he got featured, it was like, 
you know, he didn't really just spectacularly win. It wasn't like something that you wanted to see him clamoring to see him again. Like the first time he was on HBO was against um, Vince Phillips. And he won every, well, basically every round, but he just didn't look that great doing it either. And then when he finally gets a title shot, a banking title shot against this guy, Raul Frank, um, in a fight that Forrest was probably going to win, right away, a nasty headbutt created one of the nastiest cuts you've ever seen in your lifetime. So going from there, you know, finally they have a rematch and Mo, um, Forrest finally becomes champion. And he has to vacate that to fight Mosley because, of course, this is boxing. But he doesn't give a shit. He's getting the chance of a lifetime and he's getting the chance to fight a guy that he's beaten as an amateur and he knows he has a style to beat him. And he's been yelling for years that all he wants to do is fight Mosley again because he thinks he has a chance to beat him. So all that even being said, Mosley was still a big favorite in this fight because Mosley just had been looking so dominant in his entire career up until that point. And anyone that was able to legitimately beat Oscar, a peak Oscar at that, was still, you know, going to be favored and rightfully so over a guy that previously beat him. But as we watched that fateful night in Madison Square Garden, <laughs> that clearly wasn't the case. Yeah, dude, it was a good style, you know, the kind of style where Shane was just not able to get inside and kind of rough yeah. Vernon Forrest up the way he was with Oscar De La Hoya, but also... I think there probably was some element for De La Hoya where he obviously fought Trinidad different from how he fought Mosley. Like he fought Mosley like he knew he was a guy coming up from lightweight and was like, well, then I'm not worried about his punch. And so he just kind of came right at him and was like, all right, let's scrap. And, you know, at a few points in the fight realized where he, you know, was getting either outsped or like getting kind of stung a little bit and going like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't do that, you know, and, and wound up kind of boxing on his back foot a little bit. But even so, I mean, whatever excuse you want to make, Shane beat him. And uh, on the other hand, Vernon Forrest just knew that a more linear style where he was just uh, more straight up, a little bit more like, you know, as soon as Shane Mosley would get inside, he was like clinching him or doing something to make sure that he was overpowering him. And Mosley just never really got uh, on track. And especially what was like the second round where he got dinged super bad with that uppercut and then the overhand right. I mean, yeah. or it was, it might've been the reverse, but regardless, yeah, man, that was, that was bad. And so it just looked from then on, literally looked for me uh, from then on that anytime <laughs> Vernon Forrest just went, uh, uh, like that with his right hand shame was like, no, uh-uh, not me. So, I mean, you know. I mean, that was a bad knockdown, man. First, um, Mosley suffers a cut from the headbutt because a lot of Vernon Forrest fights, he always, like, you know, because Forrest would lean in a little bit. He's a tall guy, and he had a big forehead, so clashes would occur. And so Mosley suffers a cut for the first time in his career. And once that happens, you can tell he's a little frazzled, but when he goes back into the fray, that's when he said, Pat, he comes in, wow, like that, and Mosley just wonky-eyed, doesn't know what's going on anywhere, and after that, it's just a route. Like, I don't even think Forrest lost a round after that. So that was a, that was a relatively big, big upset. Um, no, that was a huge upset, excuse me. I'm not big like that. was a huge upset. Considering their amateur and everything like that, everyone thought that was irrelevant, that Mosley would still, you know, come back and do his thing. But no, that was big. And then they had a rematch. And Mosley was one of those guys we found out later on that he, he always had some um, – he was always ready to go and – going to the fray like even if he beat him the first time he would always jump in for an immediate rematch and regardless yeah even yeah. to his detriment yeah totally totally like we found out with the winky right fights but 
And this one, you know, he performed a little bit better, but the same thing, just that style, he just couldn't do anything with it. And his style just did not comp did not could not do anything with a guy like Forrest, who, like you said, just knew basically, as he even said in um in the interview after the first fight, all you gotta do is just use your jab and a right hand, you could beat a guy like Shane. Just, you know, use it smartly. And same thing, anytime Mosley came really close and you know, bullied his way in, Forrest made sure he clinched him up, came out there, boop, 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 boop. Won another comfortable decision. So as he moves on to fight a new um, rampaging, um, freshly minted Ricardo Mayorga, now Vernon Forrest is looked upon as one of the best in the world. And he just signed a massive HBO contract, and he's one of those guys that's on the on the pedestal. And like what's been going on the past couple of years, all hell breaks loose again. <laughs> yeah, Mayorga had just defeated Six Heads Lewis. <clears throat> I want to say they fought once and it was like a no contest or something like that. And then they fought again. And that was that one where he freezes him up and six heads Lewis is like suspended in midair, just like standing there. And then he takes like three more shots and that's it. But like, um, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. My just looked, you know, wild. He looked, he looked like a fighter that almost didn't quite belong. Who almost kind of just like came upon this world title by accident or something like that. I mean, that's how he looked. Um, obviously, there was far more to him than that, but he was just so weird. You know, <laughs> like he was just, he was weird. And uh, he just, he did seem like he didn't belong, but it was just, it was all wrong for Vernon Forrest all over. Really was, man. And the thing is that, like, Mayorga was one of those guys that was easily could goad you into a fight because all the shit talking he would give you and everything like that. And he's wild. You were kind of forced into it. And so, more uh, Forrest... Eating, eating a piece of pizza at the weigh-in. He was, kept calling Vernon... Yeah, he kept calling Vernon Forrest my son and shit like that. He kept referring him to my son over there and shit like that. And okay, Forrest God. is one of those guys that never took shit from anybody himself. He was always kind of had a chip on his shoulder. So, yeah, he was feeling salty. And right away, Forrest, like you said, you try to use his boxing skills against that. And it was just irrelevant. They, they couldn't do anything with a guy like Mayorga who just plowed right through it. And Forrest was a sharp puncher, but he wasn't a hard enough puncher to really get Mayorga's respect, especially back then when Mayorga was still much more fresh. This was way before he got used up. And so in their first fight, Forrest quickly even though he was landing tremendous punches he quickly got into a firefight with my because he had no other choice he was trying to stay back and trying yeah. to use everything and my didn't let him do any of that so as they get in there and they're fighting on the inside forrest is not as competent as my was on the inside especially trying to have a wild brawl so in round three that's when you see out of nowhere my gets on the ropes and lands that weird clubbing overhand right forrest leans back his eyes roll in the back of his head and he doesn't, like, really – he falls through the ropes. Like, if the ropes weren't there, he would have went clearly out of the ring. But, like, yeah, he was just gone. And that was crazy to see because at that point, no one had really, like, actually hurt Forrest in a fight, really. Yeah. It, he looked really briefly – I think it was the first round he landed an uppercut on Mayorga that just for a quick second, it was just like, oh, shit. You know, like, he's going to take this guy out. Nobody knows who this guy is, and he's going to take him out. But, obviously, that's not what happened. And – um. <clears throat> Yeah, dude, and also produced some fantastic translation from Ray Torres between rounds in that fucking fight, dude. I don't know. <laughs> he always had some gems, didn't he, Cat? Good lord, dude. Good lord, almost got killed by Julio Cesar Chavez after the fuck after the De La Hoya rematch, I think it was. But Gross. good god, 
but yeah, I mean, um, it, it just, he could not keep up with that ferocity dude. And it was a little bit too much. And if we're being totally fair, he took like a, an elbow or a forearm or whatever it was after he got knocked down, like Mara, like, you know, went kind of into him, like into the, into the ropes with a elbow or whatever. So that probably didn't help either. But either way, uh, he got up and just kind of had a blank stare to him and the, got stopped because he wasn't really answering the ref. That's how it goes. You, know, you don't answer the ref, you get stopped. No, you know, and then he tried to protest briefly, but he clearly he had no idea what was going on and his eyes were rolling around still. And then Mayorga had that infamous celebration where Larry Merchant sparks a cigarette for him at ringside. <laughs> and then Jim Lampley goes full-on narc ringside after that. It was like, if uh, anyone's watching this and wants to get in trouble, that was all Larry's thing. This had nothing to do with us. All right, guys? And he's like, looking around like all paranoid. Like, really? It was him. It was him. Yeah. yeah. Come on, Lamps. Well, and, then, and so then they actually wound up having a rematch. And I have to say, I dude, we talked about this briefly like a week or two ago. Um, and I haven't seen the fight in, gosh, years, maybe 15 years or more. But I remember at the time feeling that Forrest won by like a point or something like that. And and I do remember that late in the fight, maybe the 10th round, at one point, Mayorga was doubled over from body shots. But beyond that, it's not like Forrest was like dominating or anything. It was just that... Uh, same thing, uh, just as just as in the rematch with Mosley, uh, it was far less eventful than the first fight, Forrest Mosley, that is. And uh, Forrest was able to kind of intimidate him into winning a decision. And Mayorga, many people felt like the same, that Forrest fought scared, that he kind of got intimidated into losing a decision. So, I mean, either way, it became clear that he had a problem with Mayorga. Mosley had a problem with Forrest De La Hoya, as we also would find out later on, had a problem with Mosley too. Absolutely, man. What a strange time that was for that three-year span. And, like, and every how, time you would think they were going to be like a dominant champion for a number of years. Yeah. Got knocked off every, single, every single one of those things like upset the pound-for-pound list. Yes, completely. Like every Just single like, one of those, yeah. Right. And at that point, they were like, fuck it. You know what? Just keep Roy Jones up there until further notice. <laughs> yeah, and that the further notice didn't last too, too much longer exactly. either. Yeah, because soon after that, um, Jones got knocked down himself, and then things just went. And then that, that's when they were like, you know what? Just keep Floyd up there. Yeah. All right, Floyd, you're promoted, dude. You're Just stay there for a while. Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's That, that was a very interesting kind of web of uh, fights there for sure. And and on top of that, when you kind of like extend that into the 154 pound and other 147 pound sphere, a lot of guys that uh, a lot of the fighters that those fighters all fought, like, you know, bring Vargas in there, some Ike Corte, et cetera. It's it pretty fun. Oh, absolutely, man. It was a fun era, but it's really interesting that like it kind of culminated with Corey Spinks as champion. <laughs> Man, that was so weird, dude. That, I could definitely tell you that's one fight I have not watched back again. Spinks Mayorga. Not going to do it either. Yeah, Not going to fucking do it. I was, you know what? Watching it back then, I was happy to see Spinks win because I know that Mayorga was like, even for him, he was talking some really nasty trash and it was pretty interesting to watch Spinks just style Yeah, him. he said some pretty vile shit. And I was, I mean, you know me, man. I'm partial to the Spinks family. So to see like Michael and I think Leon might have been there and uh, Corey just dance around a guy like my I thought he was gonna walk through him. That was pretty cool. That was one of those Don King marathon cards, right? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the one where there was like four or five title fights on that shit. Bad. Just bad. Yeah, not in a good way. Not in a good way at all. But all right. You know John Ruiz was featured. Yeah, I think so. And I will pass. <laughs> Just in case his attorney wants to again get all mad at me on the internet. I hope he's not watching because I will pass, bro. <laughs> that was weird. Anyway. All right. I have a I have a good one. I have a I have a really good one that I think that you probably would not have brought up. At least I don't think. Okay. Uh and it goes back too. It goes way far back. And that's Tiger Jack Fox over Jersey Joe Walcott. Absolutely not. <laughs> I was not gonna bring that up. Good one. All right. All right. Oh, you know, hold up. Recent um just recently announced today, Hall of Fame inductee Tiger Jack Fox. That was part that was partly what kind of sparked my my kind of interest here. Cause I was like, wait, doesn't he ha- like wasn't there something with Tiger Jack Fox? And I thought about it and I was like, all right, I know he has some really good wins, but who is he on there? And I looked at his record and I was like, Oh shit, dude. He got that Jersey Joe Walcott. He got he poisoned him. And that's, you know, that's, uh, like I said, I guess it doesn't have to be a key component. The whole, like, you know, one guy beating somebody who's not, who's greater or whatever. It doesn't have to be that way. Cause there are a lot of kind of, uh, like we just mentioned, like, how do you even figure out all the greatness and all of the guys we just mentioned at welterweight, but point being, you know, Tiger Jack Fox just recently inducted into the hall of fame. Uh, I think generally speaking, short changed as far as giving, you know, the credit that he's been given historically, which sucks because he should be better known with his resume. But that being said, you know, earlier on, he defeated Jersey Joe Walcott uh, before Jersey Joe Walcott went on to achieve far more. And so, I mean, I we've talked about that in other shows where perhaps fighters should get a little bit more credit when they beat somebody and then the somebody that they beat, you know, goes on to accomplish much more. Uh, in any case, Jersey Joe Walcott, far better known, definitely given a lot more credit historically. So, yeah, he was snake bitten, apparently. Well, I mean, when you think about it, like a guy like Tiger Jack Fox is completely unknown today because there's no footage of him, as far as I know, like that's ever exist that that exists. There's barely any photos of him. And despite his incredible record and all the knockouts that he scored, the only title fight that he finally got was late in his career when he was about to retire against a guy named Emilio Patino, um, who is kind of a forgotten champion from that from the 30s as well. So, and there's some crazy shit surrounding that that too. Fight there that yeah yes. Well, it wasn't sure. that that wasn't that that Tiger Jack Fox. Correct me if I'm wrong. This off the top of my head, then he had just had like recently have surgery or some shit, and like he had no business being in the ring. Yes, it goes even deeper than that, but yes, it um, it's actually could be a, a subject of one of our true crime shows for sure. But I but, know that like that's what it was, and like you, like, I don't know if he opened up or some shit happened to him in that like it wasn't supposed to. He got stabbed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He got well. So I looked it up today because I was like, all right, I need to know more about this because of course I do, and I looked it up, and the young lady who allegedly stabbed him. In one of the news stories I found, it doesn't say it plainly, but what it certainly seems to suggest very strongly was that they were, they, the Tiger Jack Fox would not allow this lady to leave his residence. Okay. Which generally means like sexual assault or something like that. And that's more or less what she alleged. And she stabbed him just below the heart. 
with with some shit and but like i mean just barely missed it Mm -hmm. and so he wound up having to go to the harlem hospital it said and yeah and that and so then he actually wound up fighting milio batina i think it was like two months after that or a month after that but in any case a very short amount of time after almost getting stabbed in the fucking heart yeah that's that's insane (laughs) So and probably Batina, not given the best chance to win, you know, generally speaking here. And Bettina is not a guy that I'm pretty sure he's not in anybody's Hall of Fame or anything like that. But he was a very rugged individual for the time and a person you shouldn't be messing with only two months after almost dying on the operating table. So, you know, it, yeah, it's 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 really short change. It's the guy that doesn't get enough respect. And for someone to have Jersey Joe Walcott's number who was one of the all-time pains in the ass to fight for anybody in history is pretty impressive in itself. So, <laughs> Yeah, and like I said, it was slightly, it was like earlier in Jersey Joe Walcott's career, but oh. even so, I mean, it's not like he had no fights. He had like 25 fights or something like that. He wasn't and just... That so... must have been an interesting contrast in styles because, you know, reading about Tiger Jack Fox that I had, he's, he also had a wild style himself that was totally unconventional, didn't he? Well, yeah, and he was a he was a good puncher. He had long arms. He was kind of spindly, you know. Uh, and he was definitely like he wasn't huge, but he was a you know pretty well built dude, and he was a good puncher. And so was I mean, so was Jersey Joe Walcott for that matter. But they both had like Jersey Joe Walcott was uh, definitely more of a boxer puncher, more of a stylist, and Tiger Jack Fox was a little bit more of like an aggressive puncher, from what I gather. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at his record, too, you bring it up, he has scored 91 knockouts and 138 wins. And I guarantee you that's not his full career either. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're looking at a career from 1928 to 1950. There's a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, room for no contests and no decisions during that time. You know, those are the eras where it was far more difficult to actually score a knockout. Exactly. You know, he's... And it's a who's who of like who he ended up fighting and guys like that back then. I mean, just, I mean all you have to do is just go through his records. It's littered with everybody. Um, from like we said, the Melio Batina where he lost for the for the vacant light heavyweight championship, to if you could scroll up and then you see a guy like um Tiger Ted Lowry, who one of my personal favorites because he's has roots in the New Bedford area. Um, New England guy, the only guy that went the distance with Marciano twice and you know, basically fought everybody that you could fight. So those were the type of guys from that era. You know what I mean? A lot of forgotten, respectable names. And uh, a final note, too, on Tiger Jack Fox is that even though he did a lot of his fighting out of New York for much of his career, he was from the Pacific Northwest and moved back to the Pacific Northwest, spent a lot of his time up here. Um, and so he wound up becoming uh, something of a, a fixture among the boxing circles in the Pacific Northwest for a while. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess every so often we do one of these little kind of list shows and we both come up with some shit that's obscure enough that maybe it'll, maybe it'll you know, maybe it'll learn you a little bit. Maybe it'll teach some folks something, you know? For sure, for sure. And, you know, it's it's just glad because I mentioned something on Twitter earlier, just the last thought on this, that like, you know, we talked about the uh, the Boxing Hall of Fame and how the, the voting criteria has changed over the years where now certain guys that were on the, the modern ballot board never going to get inducted, got moved to an old timers. And there's the old old timers and the more modern ones. Tiger Jack Fox and another aforementioned guy from we talked about on the show, Pone Kingpatch. 
the most of the old old timers. Yeah, and man, I mean it's kind of a long time coming. Like it was finally for absurd. Both, and finally for both of them to get in after all these years um is is remarkable and it's very good and it shows that actually you know the the standards of what the hall of fame did with the voting criteria works well because look at how these guys got in now that was necessary yeah you know what I mean? well and i think that what people might be going like well, what do you mean how does that though what they shortened the amount of time that fighters could be accepted like if you fought after x year then you had to go, you know, into the modern category. But if your last fight was before X year, then you were going to go into the old timers category. And the mm -hmm. point being that like, there's been so many old timers, there's been so many inductees period, which is great, not complaining, but there's been so many inductees period that one, I think that they wanted to kind of credit some of the fighters who are still alive and still around could yeah. still be celebrated while they're still here and are still fresh in the minds of the public. But two, when they get kind of nudged into that old fighter or old timers category, it's more likely that they're going to actually get chosen or inducted because so many of those other fighters have already been inducted. So it's like kind of bumps up their chances a little bit of actually getting in. And in this case, that's, that's thankfully what happened. Um, because Pone King patch, the first ever uh, world champion from Thailand should have been in already. You know, and then obviously Tiger Jack Fox probably should have been in already too, but I'm happy that he is in now. And it is one of those fighters where like people could stand to know a little bit more. No question. Absolutely, man. It's very easy now with all the information that there is online, the articles, box rec, everything like that, that the stuff is at your fingertips. You know what I mean? It's at your fingertips. It's very easy to get this info. Yeah, there's now. really no excuse. At this yeah, point. yeah, there's no excuse to be like, oh, it's too old for me. Nah, man. If you want to find it, it's out there. Okay. Just go to any message board, anything like that. There's a lot of knowledgeable people out there that will give you what you need to find. Or just listen to the show. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but keeping up with the uh, with the deep cuts, Pat, um, one that I kind of like, I was going through some records and discovered today that I kind of forgot about. Um, going back to my favorite, uh, my favorite division, the heavyweights, and that is Jimmy Young and Ron Lyle. Okay. All right. So you think about it, Ron Lyle. He asked Jimmy Young, dude. You know, Jimmy Young gave everybody hell. Everybody. You know what I mean? But whether you got a decision over him or not, Jimmy Young gave everybody absolute fits. The only dude that was able to knock him to another hemisphere was our Ernie Shavers. But Shavers did that to everybody. So that, you know, whatever. But yeah, there's always that danger there for sure. Oh, Ron Lyle you know, uh, perennial favorite, top contender throughout most of the 70s and fondly remembered today for the wars he had with Ernie Shavers and especially George Foreman. Um, couldn't do a thing with Jimmy Young. Just just couldn't absolutely do anything. They fought twice. Um, the first time that they fought uh, was in 1975 in Honolulu, Hawaii, of all places. And um, Lyle, who had only at that point, at that point, well, um, had only suffered one defeat and was a contender, was still a considered a top contender uh suffered a wide point loss points loss to young you know and the reason why is because if you look at their styles lyle was a competent boxer himself and you know as as strong as he was and the brawls that he was in and stuff like that he was a good boxer like he had a good jab he had good skills but he was also pretty one-dimensional he wasn't very fluid in his combinations uh young on the other hand you know from philadelphia very cutesy and just pesky and didn't hit hard but 
he just had a style that was a nightmare for anybody. And not only that, he was tough as hell. He had a really good chin. He had a lot of heart and you weren't going to get him out of there. And so, you know, the first time they fought, I don't, I've never actually watched their fights. I don't, I've never seen the footage, but just reading about both of them and seeing the photos of it, by all accounts, Lyle just couldn't do anything with him. And even admitted as such, just that style, you know, just gave him absolute fits. I mean, uh, a dude who was at least partially a Georgie Benton product, you know, uh, Benton himself was a, a master strategist and trainer. And you could kind of see that in Jimmy Young's style. And he was a guy who pretty much no matter who it was that, that he was going to be fighting, there was pretty much a guarantee that you're not going to look good. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, uh, aside from those ha- small handful of times where somebody like had his number or somebody just wound up catching him like an Ernie Shavers, there's a really high probability that he was going to make you look bad. And so, be- you know, what happens with fighters like that? You know, they have a tough time getting those high level fights, or at least at times when they should get them, you know, they wait them out until they're older or they can't move as well or something like that. And that's, you know, that that was Jimmy Young. He was a guy that not a lot of f- people were really itching to fight if they didn't have to. And why would you? Because Young wasn't going to bring a lot of money to the table. He didn't have the best record back then because he would lose fights. Um, he was stopped early on a few times and he would lose fights that otherwise he might have got the decision. But he got screwed over because, you know, he had a negative style and the judges didn't like it. Fans weren't really a big fan of it. And, you know, he got screwed a few a few times. But there was other times too where he was just so good and just befuddled people that you couldn't deny him anything like that. You know, I mean, Lyle was a prime example of that. Um, George Foreman after that too would be another example. But Lyle was the one that was just kind of like, damn, you know, of all the guys, like Lyle was competitive before everybody at heavyweight. He knocked out Ernie Shavers, he beat Bugner, he beat this guy, he beat that. Um, gave Ali fits and was beating Ali before he was stopped. Um, obviously, the, the back alley war he had with George Foreman. And he mixed it up with everybody else. Like almost everybody, anyone else you can think of, Lyle basically went in with it with him. Um, and he never looked as just like kind of just out of it and useless as he did when he fought guys like a guy like Jimmy Young. So, <laughs> yeah, dude, all but ended uh, George Foreman's first career, <laughs> the first portion of his career. But what's crazy is that you go on there and he, just like George Foreman, tried to make a comeback much, much later. And George, bro, big George, inspiring everybody, everybody and their mom to make a comeback. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's weird because later on, look, Jimmy Young, first off, lasted way too long in his career than he should have. You know, um, after he beat Foreman, um, he was considered, you know, a top contender in the division, obviously, right out there at the helm. Um, as Ali was still champion, but he, you know he ends up fighting Ken Norton in the Eliminator, and again one of those fights that Young gives everybody fits. Norton had another style that was like gave people fits himself. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, you know Norton got the got the decision in the fight that a lot of people thought Jimmy Young might have edged him in, and that wasn't the first bitter pill um, Young had to swallow because look at the Ali fight. Even more people thought he got robbed against Ali when they ended up fighting in uh, in Maryland, I think it was. So, but that's when the wheels, I guess, started falling off of Jimmy Young, more or less, because after he lost at Norton and that eliminated a fight, eventually Norton got uh, retroactively declared WBC champion. Um, Right after that, Jimmy Young loses twice to, um, at at that point, the uh, unknown Ozzy Ocasio. 
And, you know, Young's career never really, you know, recovered from that. Sure, in the early 80s, he scored a few wins, and it looked like he was going to be that guy that, you know, the old veteran that would give everyone fits. But once he lost the decision, I think it was to Greg Page, um, he became a trail horse, like a complete one. But a guy that was reliable and would go rounds with everybody. You know, like the only dude back then that really stopped him and knocked the um, cut him up was Jerry Cooney. But Cooney was doing that to everybody, you know. But it's unfortunate because after that, you know, he did. Like, if you look at his record and you go in 1982, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, what is he doing fighting up until 1988? There is no reason for him to fight at all like that. You know, this is a guy that fought a who's who of the 70s, took a lot of punishment against those guys, even though he was a cutie. And now he is fighting throughout the entire decade of the 1980s, just getting knocked around by any type of fucking palooka. Yeah, dude, it's uh, you know, he fought way too long. And he also ran the gauntlet of the 1970s heavyweights, dude. I mean, there's no joke. You go through that pack of that pack of beasts, man. It's pretty wild. And yeah, uh, actually, you could kind of also say that Ozzy Ocasio, in a way, kind of had his number, um, which yes. I mean oh, is yeah. more than you could say for most fighters. But also, you mentioned Ken Norton, which is like you could slide that right into the Muhammad Ali shit, dude, because Ken Norton had Muhammad Ali's number too, and or yeah. antidote, or however you want to call it, kryptonite. Um, you know, I, uh, Brandon and I did a whole show about the trilogy between Ali and Norton. And so we kind of broke down the scores and stuff like that. If anybody's really interested in getting down to like the fucking nitty goddamn gritty of those fights. But, um, you know, I guess the traditional narrative is that Norton should have defeated him in all three fights, if not at least two of the three. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, point being that he gave Muhammad, Muhammad Ali total shit, broke his jaw on the first fight. And Ali just could not do anything with, that style just how jimmy young you know uh or uh ron lyle couldn't do shit with jimmy young style but like yeah i guess just to kind of not forget about ron lyle in this equation too really fun fighter just somebody who i guess similar to a mayorga or something like that just low on that kind of traditional craft or whatever that style you know cutesy style and somebody who wound up getting handled by somebody who did have the cutesy style. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's just funny how all of the styles play together, especially Norton, who had a funky style himself. Dude, fighting Norton must have sucked. I mean, unless you were a slugger and for whatever reason could walk through him, I, he his, his style was made... There, there's certain guys out there who, has a, who have a style that is just like a nightmare for, for classic boxers. Like, you know, they... For whatever reason, it's going to fuck with him. You know what I mean? Not only did Ali have a nightmare and couldn't do anything with Norton, really. Um, Larry Holmes struggled mightily with him, you know, because Holmes, remember, Holmes, even though as he watched his career go on, you know, like in his piston jab and he was more settled down or whatever, he still had like traits of Ali in him, especially early on in his career as he would move and the way he would jab and everything like that. And even if it wasn't the same exact style, Ali, car, you know, carbon copy, there was still similarities to it. And if there are any type of similarities to it, Norton style is still going to give you fits. And so that, you know, it played out the same way. And um, yeah, very fascinating shit. Because when you think about it, Norton and Ali, no, Ali was clearly the greater fighter and the much more um, uh, gifted one too, when it just came to like, athleticism and everything else and fluidity or whatever norton had that type of style that was just awkward and weird looking and kind of ugly and 
sometimes made for exciting fights, but most of the time made for weird, you know, awkward fights too. And yeah. And some of the, the people involved, dude, Georgie Benton, Angelo Dundee, you know, and, and then, uh, what's that? Fudge at one point, yeah, and right? then Eddie Fudge. I mean, some of the, at least on paper, some of the greatest trainers of all time. And then you, yeah, and then you got Pacheco. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just lingering around. Yeah, I got it. I got to jab at him a little bit. No, you know, uh, but yeah, there's some some serious uh, boxing minds behind some of these fighters too. And some classic, classic fights. Uh, I guess Norton and Ali are obviously considered like that's probably going to be one of the first fighters that people think of is, you know, that Orton, that Norton and his style kind of negating Ali's or whatever, or him having that kind of kryptonite for Ali. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that also they're really interesting fights, but I guess, yeah, not not the most entertaining. Nah, man, and even especially that third fight, which I watched once or so, and I'm like, you know what, I, that was good. It's just... Yeah, Ali's allowed to do a lot of grabbing and clinching and mauling and messing around in that fight for sure. Like he's kind of uh he he's by the time that third fight comes, dude, it's like he's become the master of like everybody's bought into the Muhammad Ali persona. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you don't dare question him. Like nobody's gonna dare disqualify him, like ever. Are you kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Like he's going to get away with everything. And so that's the kind of shit was like, you know, he's like sitting there like smacking and backhanding and uh, clinching too much and like talking to the referee and that, that type of shit where it winds up just being more of like a spectacle than really a fight. And that's kind of how it devolved or whatever. It's like, he was buying time. Like he didn't have any legs. He didn't have shit after a few rounds. So he's just like buying time. It's not a good fight, but either way, yeah, the style of, of Norton is just an absolute fucking nightmare for the guy, for a lot of fighters too. So perfect example there. And yeah, a great one. And, you know, Steve Farhood wrote a very good article right after Montel Griffin fought Roy Jones the first time. Cause Farhood said that and like ended up being wrong about this, but he did, he predicted, and I think a lot of people, um, including you and I, I guess, would have agreed with him that after that first fight, everybody thought that Montel Griffin he looked style... bad. Roy looked yeah. bad. Yes, very bad. And everyone thought that Montel Griffin style would just give Roy fits no matter what, whenever they fought. And oh, he had Futch in his corner too. You that's know, what, that's what I was about to bring up is that Steve brought up a good point where in that article he talked about what Eddie Futch told Ken Norton before he fought Ali the first time, explained to him what to do. You know, how to, like, back him to the ropes, how to jab with him, because Ali wasn't used to people jabbing at him, fighting out of that semi-crouch. You yep. catch the Countering club, with the right hand. Counter with the right hand and jab with him. By the time he gets to the ropes, he tries to lean back, go to his body, and then you got to come over the top, and it worked like a charm. And then he kind of said this similar thing to um, Montel Griffin with Roy Jones. You know, not exactly carbon copy, but more or less similar shit. And he was like, yeah, you know, you fight out of a semi-crouch, you jab with him, Roy isn't used to people doing that. You jab, move and move until eventually he gets to the ropes. By the time he gets to the ropes, Roy has a tendency, as we all saw, he would stand straight up when you would do that. Move to his body, he would have to drop his hands, then you come over the top and start hitting him. Like, you know, yeah, he was like really, really disruptive. Really just like, yeah. you know, Roy is a very rhythmic type of fighter. 
And if you don't let him get into the rhythm, like, and that's what he was doing. He was just, every time Roy was going to punch, he was like reaching out to like grab him or, you know, some shit. And he, I, dude, I would have agreed with Farhood for sure. Absolutely. But the I problem mean, was. Anybody expected RJ to come out and not fucking. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was about to say, dude. The problem was he woke up RJ. Woke up RJ. Shouldn't have done it. And also, Montel was kind of a bonehead. He got too big for his britches. He thought he was like super shit after that. And he fired Eddie Futch. Yeah, that was like a just just that sequence of events going from, uh, well, first of all, yeah, he got hit. Like, yeah. Roy shouldn't have hit him. Did the DQ suck? Of course. But, dude, you hit him twice while he was down. Neither of them were very hard, and I think Montel Griffin probably acted that shit up, sure. But you can't, like, act that shit up, but then, like, talk shit. <laughs> you can't do, you can't have it both ways, you know what I mean? If you're going to, like, act that shit up, you're going to be all, like, you have to go on pre-fight and be like, Roy's a big bully, you know, I just don't like him. You gotta do something, you know, but he, instead he was talking shit. And so Roy was just like, alright, fine, fine. And it's and it's crazy, too, because, like, for him to be talking all that shit, because he legitimately went down. I mean, Roy hit him after he went down because he Oh, went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had him in trouble. Like, he had him in trouble, you know? And if Roy didn't pull a bonehead move and hit him while he was down, he chances are he would have stopped him in the round or two after that. So, you know. Yeah, Roy was a good finisher. And uh, if he had a guy in trouble, it would have been bad, bad move if he had just kept his hands to himself. Finally, and he had finally, like, broken through and, like, you know, broke him down enough that he was ready to do it, so... Yep. Yeah, I think it was like a right hand he kind of caught him with, and and Griffin was kind of like trying to roll with it, but it was just like, now nah, I got to take a knee, and he and he wisely took a knee, but Roy very unwisely hit him, dude. It's what what winds up happening. So I would have agreed with Farhood because he looked bad up until that point, and it's kind of just like, well, you can't excuse the guy because you lose your cool. Mm-hmm. It's part of the whole. That's part of the deal. But yeah, he wound up being incorrect. But I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have disagreed with him at the time. Same, same. Um, another one actually from uh from the nineties now that I thought would be an interesting one because they had a trilogy, but I don't consider that a third fight um anything. And that's um Frankie Randall against Julio Cesar Chavez. I had that one too. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one, dude. That's a really good one, especially because I mean now, especially now that we can go back on box rec, and now that we have a lot more information overall, we can do our own researching and stuff like that that we know that there was a far earlier in his career Julio Cesar Chavez should have a loss yes. but the local commission bitched out and you know it happens what are you gonna do it was so, a DQ. what's that DQ loss he had yeah it was some sort of DQ loss and then like the next day the commission was like hold on somebody made a fucking donation <laughs> that's pretty much how it goes so I don't know whatever, but at the time Julio Cesar Chavez was definitely marketed as undefeated, promoted as undefeated. And, uh, you know, he'd had a handful of close calls or fighters who had given him a lot of shit, given him a lot of trouble. Obviously Meldrick, Meldrick Taylor, uh, the first fight was a massive struggle. Now we know it is, uh, you know, a pretty legitimate super fight as far as, you know, uh, I think it was what 1990. So it was kind of the start of the nineties and, whatnot and going he was still plowing forth dude he was still a hero he was still undefeated as we all knew and whatnot and ran into frankie randall who i think for a lot of people that was a really unlikely like a really unlikely person to stop that momentum for a lot of people you know 
Well, yeah, you know, like you said, man, Chavez at that point had been pound for pound number one or at least one or two for a number of years. You know, um, he was always like looked upon as like, you know, Don King's second tier guy when Mike Tyson was um, was still active. But once Tyson went to jail, Don King really catapulted Chavez into the, you know, into his top guy. And also too, after Tyson got knocked out and, you know, lost his title, like Chavez was being positioned because when you think about when he first came on in the eighties, after he won his first world title against um, Mario Martinez in 84, Chavez was just a dominant force, man. You know what I mean? He plowed through the junior lightweights. He moved up to lightweight. Um, when you fought Edwin Rosario, that was probably yeah, he'd already been one. a champ like five, six years by the Taylor fight. That's what a lot of people don't understand. And I mean, look at the guys that he had fought up until that point too, man, that like either whether they were close fights or not, he still had victories over them. I mean, at junior lightweight, he beat guys like Juan Laporte, he beat Rocky Lockridge, he beat um, Roger Mayweather. Um, he moves up to lightweight. He um, decimates Edwin Rosario and won the best performances of the 80s, regardless of a division or fighter. Probably Chavez's grandest night, man. He was incredible that yeah, night. Rosario was good as fuck, too. That's the thing. You know, it's just that he wound up having a few key losses, but and so gets remembered unfavorably. But he's a really fucking good fighter. Rosario was a great fighter and, you know, a legitimate Hall of Famer, but he couldn't do a thing with Chavez, who just beat the living daylights out of him, man. Rosario looked like a fucking... Uh, he he looked like a person that just came out of a war, you know what I mean, out of that like a legitimate war zone somewhere. His face was just battered and swollen and bloodied and just, you know, looked like someone just took a bat to it for three hours. But um, look what Chavez did at lightweight too, you know what I mean? Same thing. He was just dominating everyone that there was, culminating um, with him beating um, Jose Luis Ramirez to, you know, to unify the belts. And then when he moves up to junior welterweight, and beats Roger Mayweather for that belt over there too. Now same thing. Like Chavez now, as the '90s turn on, he is slightly he is starting to slow down a little bit. Like the the Meldrick Taylor fight, he probably should have lost that if it wasn't for Richard Steele. But regardless, he comes through with that, and he's really isn't the same after that too. Like he, you know, he's not he hasn't dropped like Taylor has, but there is a slight little step you know missing there. We soon found out that he's both in burning. Uh, he was burning both ends of the bridge, you know, with his outside of the ring activities too. But none of us really knew about that back then. So, you know, he's still dominating and still winning and everything like that. But I mean, it's you know, he's fighting a mid um, middling contenders or faded contenders, and the first time where you actually see there's like a whoa, you know, maybe he's not the best fighter in the world is when he fights Bernard Whitaker, and that was what 93, 94? I think it was 94, I want to say. Or, no, it might have been 93. It was 93, yeah. Yeah, it was 93. And, you know, people talk today about how tough it is to make fights because of networks and all that other shit and stuff. And I get it, it is. But you got to think back on this. Pernell Whitaker and Julio Cesar Chavez were two of the biggest fighters in the world in 1993, especially a guy like Chavez. And Whitaker, knowing that he wasn't going to be the A-side and knowing that he's won this fight more than anything, even though Chavez fought on Showtime and Whitaker was, you know, had an HBO deal. Whitaker said, you know what? I'm going to Showtime to fight Chavez. Not only that, I'll go to San Antonio to fight him too because I just want this fight. HBO was fucking pissed about that. Absolutely. Everybody else was just kind of like, yeah, you know, you sure you really want to do that because going there is basically a suicide mission. But Whitaker said to himself, you know, if you want to be the best, you got to fight the best. And goes out there and whips Chavez's ass. 
you know, this wasn't even close. You can't say that. Like, the first two rounds were pretty good, but after that, Whitaker put on a clinic, you know, because Chavez moved up to fight him. That's what it was. Chavez moved up to fight him at welterweight. And because Whitaker was the welterweight champ at that point. And Whitaker just did what he needed to do with him. You know what I mean? And that was when people were just kind of like, oh, you know, maybe the wheels are coming off a little bit with Chavez. Like, he still whooped Camacho's ass and, you know, still had some dominant performances. But slowly, you know, you were, people were starting to wonder, hey, man, maybe he's going to be ripe for an upset. Yeah. It, and uh, it was pretty clear that, like, having gone through, he was in his third weight class. But also the style, this, that's not a style that tends to last super long overall, really aggressive, good inside fighter. Even so, he lasted a long time. You know, overall, he lasted a long time. But um, yeah, it just, it can't last. You know, that style cannot last. And like you said, getting into a level, a lot of not trouble, like not like legal trouble, but just getting into trouble outside the ring. And I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that does not lend to a long career. So, I mean, one way or another, it, Julio Cesar Chavez was going to run into somebody. It's yeah. just that I think that that's the point is that not a whole lot of people thought it would be Frankie Randall that he ran into. No, not at all. And Frankie Randall is one of those guys that he came from um, a hard luck contender. You know, I mean, he is a pro for another one from a long, long time. He turned pro in 1983. And... You know, yeah. First, he started out in the uh, in the Tampa in the Florida area, fighting in a lot of the back halls in Tampa and places like that. And then he finally moves on and you know makes his way over to the Atlantic City area, which was also obviously a hotbed for boxing in the mid '80s, early mid '80s, up, up throughout all of the '80s for that matter. But if you look at the names on his record too, from back then, yeah, 1986, he fights Sammy Fuentes, who long-time contender, ends up becoming WBO champion in the 90s, fought a who's who, gave everybody hell. Freddie Pendleton, one of my favorites. You know, basically the poster child for a guy who has a bad record, yet becomes a world champion one day. You know what I mean? And these are the guys he has to go through. You know what I mean? His first, um, one of his first, his first losses to a tough guy named Primo Ramos. But then he, again, he's just, throughout the 80s, and up until like the 90s, he's not getting a title shot. He's known as a perennial contender, but another guy that's also been very avoided because who wants to fight a person like this? You know what I mean? Like there's very little reward fighting a guy like Randall. He's extremely dangerous and he's a very, very good fighter, but like there's no reason to. The only guys that will give him a shot is a guy like Edwin Rosario or people like that. So by the time the 90s come rolling around, he's still plugging along. He's still going through. He's still winning all his fights. But he's not like, you know, he's not really inching closer or anything. And at that point, it looks like he might be one of those contenders who just kind of stay on the USA Tuesday night fight circuit, like the ESPN circuit. Not going to break out of that mold because no one really wants to give him a shot. But after he knocks out Edwin Rosario in a rematch to a fight that he lost by razor-thin decision um, years earlier, that's when he finally gets the shot at Chavez. Because at that point, if Rosario had beaten, um, if Rosario had beaten, um, excuse me, Randall, then he probably would have got the rematch with Chavez because they were just trying to have a state a state busy pay-per-view fight for Chavez as he moved his way to 100 and 0. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it was an event, but it was just kind of like a meh event. Like, you know, one of those pay-per-view fights that Chavez always had that he would beat his opponent up, but you know, whatever. So Rosario gets stopped by him. Um, Randall gets a couple of more, you know, stay busy wins. And then he finally gets his date with destiny. Julio Cesar Chavez, January, 1994. 
Oh man. And I mean, you know what? It's one of those things where it's like, even if that's, even if that's what you got, you know, even if that's the only thing that you got, like, it's pretty fucking good, dude. You know? And on top of that, they, he, he was up against it that night. Clearly he was obviously up against it that night because he's still only one by, by split decision. Insane. Like, bro, you know, Chavez gets penalized two points in that fight. I just had to make sure I double check that. He gets penalized two points in that fight and he gets dropped. That's three points lost. And Randall still only wins by a point. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, dude, you, it's, it's the way that that sounds on paper is that Chavez whooped his ass. He just had some bad luck in a few rounds when that is not what happened whatsoever. It, it was a combination, obviously, of Chavez's career and everything catching up to him. But also, Frankie Randall seizing the moment. You know, like, he he stepped up and he did what he was supposed to do in that moment. Well, I mean, a lot of guys who have always been denied and they've never really been on that big stage like that freeze up when they finally get their big title fight. You know what I mean? It happens. Um, Not the stay, surgeon. Well, you stay stuck in a rut for so long and you never really bit, break out of that. And finally, you get put on the stage where you're fighting Julio Cesar Chavez on pay-per-view at the MGM Grand. Like... You know, sometimes you just don't perform to the best of your abilities. You clam up, whatever may happen. You know what I mean? Not Randall. Randall stepped the fuck up and put on an amazing performance. And what made it even more incredible is that, like, it just wasn't that Chavez was having an off night. Randall's style was giving Chavez his fits, you know? Randall was was faster than Chavez. He was quicker, um, he was quicker footed. He was a sharper puncher that night. And he, you know, wasn't afraid to stand there and, like, trade with him in combination, but move afterwards. Like, he just... Everything he did, he was a step faster than Chavez, you know? And Randall was a sharp puncher, too. Like, he was just able to take it. And whenever Chavez was able to maneuver him to the ropes and land his, you know, signature body shots or do some work, Randall was able to get out of it, you know what I mean? And I can't say it was a completely one-sided fight. Chavez did start getting some work done once he started warming up. And it became like a war of attrition in the middle rounds. But you got the sense that anytime it looked like Randall was going to start to wilt a little bit, he just came back and started surging even harder. You know, and yeah, like the 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 low blows that Chavez got um, penalized for definitely fucked up his momentum. And like you see the the visible like the visible anger on his face when Steele was like, you know, one point, one, one point, and Chavez is like, Ugh! because he feels like he need you know he needs to be coddled. He's been taking care of his whole career. He's never lost, never lost. And everybody has always you know made sure that he gets the benefit of the doubt. So now that he's being penalized points and things aren't going his way. He's starting to throw a little bit of a temper tantrum at the same time. When he gets and on top of that, there's the whole dynamic of steel for years, even until like now, will get booed at fucking fight cards and shit like that. Yeah. But for years, immediately after the Meldrick Taylor fight, people were constantly saying, "Oh, well, Steele's a Don King referee and he's on the take." So it was mm -hmm. almost like there was a number of fights after that where he like went the other way. You know what I mean? Like where he was just like, "Oh, like." almost going against the Don King fighters and shit like that. I mean, it was, it was wild, dude. It was insane. And so Randall scores that knockdown, man. It was like in round 11, like first off, I think Chavez, you know, was a low blow. He got deducted another point. And then you hear um, Freddie Pacheco. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh. And then finally they move back in and it was the most beautiful two piece you ever seen too. Cause Chavez just walks in hands down a little bit. Randall probes with a jab and it goes, and that right hand just right through the guard, right? Just 
clean. His head snaps. Brum. It snaps and Chavez just drops on his ass and just rolls back a little bit. And Steve Albert has a great call because everybody loses it. No one ever will see that. Wow, and down goes Chavez for the first time in his career. You know, and then you hear even Bobby Chez, who usually was kind of reserved, he was getting very excited. Oh, this is incredible. This is incredible. Oh, my God, this is incredible. Leave it up to Ferdy Pacheco to have the to lay the egg of it. Lay, lay the biggest egg. And he goes, oh, now it's goodbye title, Bobby. <laughs> Just like, like, you know, all deadpan because, first off, in the beginning of the Girl. fight, Pacheco, Pacheco was an idiot. The very beginning of the fight, um, Albert was saying, you know, Frankie Randall was saying, uh, Albert said that, oh, Frankie Randall says that he has a surprise for us. And um, Ferdy Pacheco said very, like, sarcastically, yeah, the surprise is that he lasts past three rounds with the great Julio Cesar Chavez. <laughs> Good one, Ferdy. Yeah, like, you know, so... Nappy. <laughs> Chavez loses that, and then, you know, one of my favorite, all-time favorite uh, moments after the fight, Chavez has a complete breakdown, freaking out. <laughs> and his um his interpreter, uh, you remember the lady before Ray Torres? Yeah, involved? she's talking all sorts of shit. Like, she's, like, taking liberties, though. Like, she's she not even... Crazy. Yeah, she's not even translating what he's saying. Yeah. She just starts going off on her own. Like she is livid. That whole time, everybody is livid. You know what I mean? We're suing she, you. Everybody's you, getting sued. You're like, it's not fair. That was a slip. He did not go down. That was nothing like that. Blah, blah, blah. He wants a rematch. He doesn't understand. He wants to sue Richard Steele. That's all he wants. He's like, she is going, like, her, the fucking veins in her forehead are, like, throbbing. Chavez is sitting there so pissed off. Everybody is just livid. You know, like this was not according to the plan. Chavez was supposed to make it to 100 and 0, and they're gonna have this big thing, and yada yada yada. And Frankie Randall fucked their plans up. So, of course, they were gonna have the rematch, you know. And that was on that famous card, and what's still considered today probably the greatest pay per view, top to bottom. I'm not saying what actually occurred in the ring, but top to bottom, the card is still considered the the holy grail, and that's revenge the rematches. And you know, and and ahead. once again, they're just Frankie Randall's up against it, dude. Once yes. again, Frankie Randall, you know, I mean, like, it's not like, again, he, it's not like he's like dominant or anything like that, but it looks like he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, accidental headbutt, and he winds up, the difference in the fight winds up being the deduction from the WBC, which is like, some people don't even know about this fucking rule, because it's like, seems to be arbitrarily enforced, like, you've probably seen it enforced like three times total in a fight, where there, if there's an accidental headbutt and there's a WBC title on the line, that there's supposed to be a two point deduction from the headbuttee. It was I, absurd, and not only that, Randall was whooping on him in that fight too. Regardless of what the score says, Randall was winning that fight, and Randall was on his way to potentially even stopping Chavez. He was doing good, and then that like that stupid rule that has to be one of the dumbest, if not the dumbest, fucking rule that ever existed for WBC. It makes no sense. An accidental. So, but. Yeah, and so then they go, and so he loses a, a technical decision where it's just, dude, so limp, bro, so stupid, fucking weak. And clearly that was made to make sure that he wasn't going to, um, that Chavez was going to get the belt back as quickly as possible. That's all that was. Yeah, well, at least Frankie got his rematch. Yeah, right. Or, well, rubber match, whatever, but yeah, dude. But e either way, I think that it went to show that, yeah, Chavez was obviously uh slipping sliding clearly but frankie randall deserved better than what he got dude that's for sure absolutely 
Well, here, let's see. Uh, got time for a couple more. I think I have a, a really good one here that you might not have brought me. I don't know. Knowing you actually, you might have brought this up. But fighting Harada over Eder Joffre. It's a good one. I didn't think of that. Good one. Because, I mean, it's pretty. It's still pretty high level. Oh, shit. There's some shit going on in New York tonight. I don't know. Something weird. I just heard outside. We're good. Yeah. There are, there's always some shit going on over there, man. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, uh, Eder Joffre, obviously one of the greatest fighters from South America, if not the greatest, clearly the greatest Brazilian fighter of all time, uh, just high level fighter overall. One of those guys that we've talked about fighters from other eras that would fit in from any era just fine. He's one of those, uh, watch him on, on tape. He looks great. Absolutely fantastic inside fighter, good punching power, good skills overall, uh, and also from pretty much all accounts, a super nice guy and a very dominant bantamweight called the golden bantamweight in Brazilian Portuguese because uh, he was an incredible bantamweight. But unfortunately, he ran into a guy in fighting Harada who just, it was just for whatever reason, the style and also probably the fact that uh, it came toward a fairly long run, the end of a fairly long run for Joffre too, uh, <laughs> that fighting Harada just, he just had his number. It was just a style that Joffre could not overcome twice. Well, Harada was a tornado, bro. That's the one thing about him. You know what I mean? It's like, again, you talk about like a classic boxer and a guy like Joffre was a classic boxer. And then you have a guy like Harada who was short, stocky, just a fire plug and threw a bajillion punches at you. It wasn't particularly a hard hitter, just a guy that overwhelmed you. And if you couldn't hurt Harada, and most people couldn't, um, it's going to be hard to keep him off you. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, Joffrey, again, like a, one of the greatest of all time, man, a beautiful practitioner and a guy that really solidified his legend status by retiring after the two Harada fights, coming back as a featherweight and then becoming champion again. And then dominating that division again for a few years before finally retiring and saying enough is enough. Like, and, and yeah, just easily one of the all time, however you feel about him as a fighter or his rating overall, that's fine. I'm not going to argue, but that what he did retiring and going away and then yeah. coming back and fighting at that level that many years later is just like, nobody Against does that. Featherweight division too. It wasn't like, he yeah, was coming nobody does that at all. So that shows you the legend of fighting Harada himself. You know what I mean? And how great Harada was that he was the only person to get two wins over Joffrey. Yeah. Amazing. There are great fights to watch. Like they're very, very, and, and um, they're available. I think they're on YouTube. They are. And actually uh, just as kind of like a icing on the cake to the whole, the whole thing uh, before Eder Joffrey died recently, he was able to, uh, I think that he was able to meet up with fighting Harada again, but I know for sure that they were able to like, they zoomed a whole bunch of times and stuff like that and wound up sending some stuff to one another, uh, kind of connecting once again before Eder Joffre died. Um, and we're, we're friends, you know, throughout life, even though one Japan and the other in Brazil. So yeah. Um, pretty amazing though especially when you consider the fact that Joffre did come back later on you know so it wasn't just like some anomaly like he was shot or like something like that fighting Harada was just a serious pain in the ass well yeah Harada himself is considered um maybe the great the greatest Japanese fighter in history and definitely in the discussion of um 
greatest Asian fighter in history, for that matter. You know, like absolutely, Harada was an incredible, incredible fighter himself, and that um, and he almost became a three division champion too afterwards. You know, when he um, when he got robbed for the featherweight crown. So, and this was back in the original eight. You know, I mean, it wasn't like he was jumping to junior divisions or anything because fucking who knows how many titles, how many um straps he would have won. You know, but. Yeah, Harada was just a buzzsaw, you know, and one of those guys that, like, if you couldn't keep him off him, if you couldn't keep uh, him off you, chances are, before you even realize what the hell happened, you'd be down a number of points because he just overwhelmed you like a buzzsaw, you know. And Joffrey would adjust, like, in their first fight, Harada overwhelmed him for the first few rounds, and Joffrey had to come up from, like, a major points deficit, and it certainly didn't help him that the fight was held in Japan either, you know, but... Yeah, the first fight's pretty hotly contested. The second fight, I think it was it was a little bit more of a struggle for Joffrey. But mm-hmm. but yeah, both of them are definitely well worth watching. Joffrey, just in terms of skill, is you know he's a he's a nice fighter to watch. He's easy to watch. Uh, so yeah, they're good fights for sure. Probably. So yeah, that's a great one, man. That's not one I was actually going to think about bringing up. But um, my last one actually was one that I was like thinking about today and as I bring up his record that is the Cincinnati Cobra as a Charles and Archie Moore all right dude hell yeah, yeah. And, well and that and that fits too because especially because even though our era Ezra Charles in recent years has been getting more and more credit more and more recognition mm-hmm. just historically he's been pretty underrecognized and unheralded um and especially because it's like, you know, the recognition is that he was heavyweight champion, which, you know, obviously no, no argument. He held it from like 49 to 51 or whatever. But even so, his light heavyweight run is like one of the greatest runs in the history of the sport. You know, like he like the amount of great fighters he fought at light heavyweight. And at the time that he fought them and beat them is just like, dude, I mean, fucking Charlie Burley the night before high school graduation. <laughs> I know, dude. Man, Charles was was a freak of nature back then, bro. And the, like, I love his uh, I love his yearbook where it talks about how you know he loves the ladies and he does this and that. And then um, I forgot what what high school he went to, but uh, that that the end of it says that whatever high school it was, it says that's their gift to the boxing world. That's for Charles. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like you know. It was legit, dude. Extremely legit because he's a very unheralded fighter, even still, despite the fact that he's gotten far more credit. Because Archie Moore, you know, a character we've talked about him on the the Greatest Punchers show that we did. Um, you know, just a, a lovable guy, celebrity, wound up being in movies later on, facing some of the greatest fighters of all time, and also some you know really big name fighters later on too. So. Yeah, it's easy to kind of lose Ezard Charles to Archie Moore there, even though Ezard had him. And and that's the thing is that as a kid, when I was first learning about this and learning about, you know, the, the history of boxing and all that, I never knew Ezard Charles was a light heavyweight. Hell, I didn't know Billy Conn was a middleweight. I didn't know um, uh, Gene Tunney was a light heavyweight, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you learn about this stuff and then I learned that wait a minute not only was Ezra Charles a light heavyweight but he was considered the greatest light heavyweight that ever lived potentially yeah. and without even winning the title like without even winning the what? title you're like okay what how is could this that be and then you look and then you find out that he fought Archie Moore three times in the 1940s and this is way before Moore even became champion 
and whooped his ass each time, as long with everybody else that he was fighting at that point. So, you know, you got to remember is that, like, Esther Charles is not usually considered a charter member of Black Murderers Row so much. You know what I mean? He fought all those guys, but he wasn't, like... It was. It's almost like both Archie Moore and Ezra Charles. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, you're good. But it's almost as if you know they both were considered part of that kind of Black Murderers Row group, but mm-hmm. then they both almost lost that distinction. Uh, I think Ezra Charles partially because he started getting backed by money, but also Archie Moore later on when he got, won the light heavyweight championship and got far more opportunities. And I think that seemed to be the key with a lot of the idea behind the black murders row was that these were fighters who had never gotten the opportunities, even if earlier on they were kind of considered part of that group. But yeah, like, I mean, but you look at both of their resumes and they fought like everybody. Yeah. Everybody, man, back then. And, you know, if you look at the guys that there were like Charles didn't beat everyone at black murders row. I remember um, after Charles had beaten Archie Moore and he had beaten Charlie Burley and he looked led upon that, like he was, you know, going to plow through everybody else. My personal favorite of the group, Lloyd Marshall, fought him and whooped his ass, like, really badly, you know? Um, and well, it's like, you fight enough of those guys, somebody's going to yeah. beat you. And, and yeah, Lloyd Marshall was probably the quirkiest one out of the group, too, with the most peculiar style and just a murderous puncher, though, that you just did not want to um, try to mess with. If you didn't come on your best behavior, if you didn't come in your peak um, training or anything like that, chances are Lloyd Marshall is going to knock your head off and dance around while doing it. So, um but yeah, that was it. But the one dude out of the and same thing, Archie Moore had lost a uh, lost a decision to Charlie Burley. He, you know, fought guys like Jack Chase. He lost to Eddie Booker. Like Moore didn't really have a good record against most of the murderers role. Like he beat the Especially middleweight. Yeah, you know. Um, even the guys that weren't a part of that group, like the uh, the White brothers there, um, Shorty and Big Boy Hogue. I think Shorty Hogue beat him a couple of times too, wasn't it? So like Moore was really in his development back then. That's when he was like really learning because he was going through the wins and losses and like, you know, picking things up and learning here and there and going through the shit. But um, at this point, they fought three times. The first two times that Charles, uh, Charles fought him, they, he won decisions. And then in their third time, and it was the time that Charles knocked him out. And that was the one that they said was probably the most exciting one out of the group because they traded rounds in that one. And, and they were trading bo- um, bombs and everything like that. And when, by the time Charles knocked him out in round eight, Moore had him on the verge of a knockout himself. <laughs> yeah, dude. It, well, and it's hardly, you can't exactly fault the guy, fault either of them, actually. I mean, they're both incredibly great fighters and keeping each other close, especially in that one fight. But it's just that Ezra Charles, for whatever reason, uh, that mixture of like speed and sharp punching just mm-hmm. was too much for, I guess, I think it's just too much for Archie's style, which was more laid back overall. He was more like, all right, you know, you come to me, I'll counter your ass and I'll counter the shit out of you. But if you knew, if you know how to deal timing wise with a counter puncher, they won't touch you. You know, they're, you're going to force them out of their comfort zone. And that sounds like what happened with Ezra Charles is he just overwhelmed Archie more and was too much for him. But again, no shame. Was, yeah. And that's the thing we found out Ezra Charles was basically too much for everybody. Like he just, He's one of the greatest fighters that ever lived. And it's so sad what ended up happening in his life later on because he was young. He was only in his mid-50s when he, um, when he died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS, yeah. Lou Gehrig's disease, yeah, yeah. 
And chances are, the way it looks at the look, way it's looking at it, he probably was already suffering from the very early effects of it while he was still competing in his career, you know? Because he was talking about it too. They talked to like people talk, like his wife and others would talk about how he would say his leg was feeling numb or he felt like he was draggy or a little bit something. And, but he would just ignore it, you know what I mean? And not think anything of it until eventually things started escalating. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, just kind of a, uh, a hallmark of just about any fighter's careers. He fought too long. He went a little bit too high in weight. He started as a middleweight. He was not a massive guy. He's like my height. You know, he's not a, he was not a super tall guy. He wasn't real big frame wise either, but still went to heavyweight and was an effective heavyweight. And he also like took Marciano to the fucking limit, bro. Like not like, you know, a lot of people will, I'm not trying to stick up for or against Marciano. It's not about that, but a lot of people will dismiss and say like, ah, well, he only fought old guys and light heavyweights. And yeah, I mean, whatever, fine. Dismiss him how you want. But like Ezra Charles was fought for his life. <laughs> like he was fighting like it was a mad rabid animal in there. So, I mean, it's. And it's unfortunate. Like the full fights, I think for both of them don't even exist. Right. It's only partial ones for both of them. Yeah, there are a couple rounds. The first one, especially, that was one of the first fights that I remember watching that was like an old fight. And I remember being like, oh my God, like, you know, this is fucking vicious. But now the the versions they have out now are missing like three or four rounds or something like that. But even so, they're really good. Oh, no, it was great, man. That first fight, because a lot of people thought Charles was past it and would just get plowed through by Marciano and not Charles. You know, gritted down, took a lot of punishment himself, but that was one of the classic great heavyweight fights you can find. And um, I think that was the only time Marciano went the distance in a title fight, wasn't it? Yeah. So, and the second one was where he was like almost yeah, lost his face. <laughs> I mean, like, there's no way a punch can do that to a nose. So we know that now because I was something, I mean, I, some people thought that was initially a punch and it can't be. There was an absolute chunk missing right here which is so ghastly to look at even black and white photos. Imagine if that shit was colorized and it would have been stopped immediately. Now yes, like it just wouldn't problem. even, it was like, what was it? An elbow? I think that Charles caught him with a something like an Aaron something punch. Like that. That. Something clearly... yeah, like he like, it was like one of those where he like hit, but then like, you know, like followed yeah. through with an elbow or something like that, you know? And Ugh. I remember like Marciano saying to that, like, <laughs> well, no, if you watch it, um, because they remember on like on ESPN Classic and other stuff, they Marciano had those shows, like used to host those shows where he'd watch like old fights. Yeah. And he was watching one of them, he was watching his with Charles and he was like commentating his own stuff. And he was talking about it. And at first he was saying that Ali Colombo and um uh was it Charlie Goldman and then were saying, you know, oh don't worry about it, don't worry about it. It's fine, it's fine, everything's good, just a little scratch, go out there. And Marciano was like, no, and he was like, I'm bleeding bad. He's like, No, that's a scratch. And then he comes back in the corner, he was like, My corner tells me the truth, they can't stop the bleeding. I gotta go out there and knock him out. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, he had the greatest commentating for his for the ones that he did. Like where there was, uh, I think he they showed one where he dubbed over Archie Moore versus Yvonne Durrell. I think it was, and he's sitting there and he's like commentating. He's like, "I think Archie's got him now. Go get him, Archie! You got him!" <laughs> it's hilarious. But yes, dude, that was absolutely fucking brutal. Um, and I mean, you know, Ezra Charles, he almost did it twice. Two yeah. fights, he almost did it. And at that advanced stage in his career, uh, that shows how great he was. But going back to what you were talking about, that probably was a massive contributing factor to how he ended up, unfortunately. 
I mean, it's it's sad because Archie Moore had a longer career than he did. Archie Moore started his career in the in the 30s and ended his career in the mid 60s, early mid 60s. Ezra Charles started his career in the beginning of you know 1940 and ended had basically himself a 20 year career too, ended 1959, 1960, and it's like, you know. I don't know. He just, by the end, unlike Moore, who was just an anomaly in itself, for whatever reason, and was able to, like, you know, take the punishment he took early on in his career, but, like, you know, still just survive and just linger and do whatever he did. Charles didn't. Like, his style just, he took punishment. Like, he became a trail horse, and it wasn't, like, a good thing either. Like, after the Marciano fights, like, his career really nosedived after that. And then, like, guys that he shouldn't have lost to he was losing to regularly and getting beat up badly for it too like you know a lot of guys were knocking him out then you know and you take enough of that punishment and eventually you know it's it is what it is and it's just like it's it's really sad and you see that you see that um you know that really really tragic commercial that they put out in the 70s right before he died and you see charles in the wheelchair and he's you can't move and everything. That's just fucked up, man. Yeah, that ALS commercial. It's mm-hmm. fucked up, dude. Yeah, and I mean, he obviously was a more extreme example of how how a fighter can end up, but it was sad, especially given his age. That he, he died at 53 in 1975. So 53 and 75. He would have been 63 and 85. Like... You know, he was still he still he should have still been alive in the nineties. He still should have been one of those guys that had a chance to visit the Hall of Fame, yeah. signing autographs, and you know, mingling with fans and talking old war stories with Archie Moore and Jimmy Bivens and other contemporaries of his time. Joey Maxim, you know, guys who did have a chance to visit the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know, what I mean? totally tragic. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but he did have Archie Moore's number. You know, I mean, yeah. that's yeah. that's one that thing that we can give to him. Too. And there's other guys, and there's other examples too. We kind of brought up like there's Iran Barkley to a degree. That's haven't a talked one, about yeah. him. Um, if you want to go really, really deep back with some deep cuts, you can go with um, Stanley Ketchell against um, Maurice. Maurice, uh, what's his last name? Oh gosh, Maurice I was White. just looking at it. I was earlier. about to say Maurice White, but that's the dude from Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maurice Thompson. Yeah, I was just going to say we were talking about it earlier. And Maurice Thompson or, you know, um, Jack Dempsey with Fat Willie Meehan. Like, there's always, you know, a guy out there that just give you fits. George Benton made a good comment, you know, made an interesting comment in his book um, that Dave Anderson wrote about the cornerman. And mm. he said that George Benton always said everything is about styles. It doesn't matter if you're the best fighter in the world. There's always a style out there that will give you fits. He was like, that's what happens in boxing is that there's certain styles that just can't deal with. And he made a, he made an example. He said, look at the lightweight champion, Jimmy Carter. He said, Carter can make a title defense and win it and do something like that. But then he'd lose a non-title fight to an absolute scrub bum because that guy just gave him fits for no other reason. And I suspect, in my opinion, that there might be more than that going on considering the time period. But mm-hmm. he, makes a good point. he makes a good point. You know what I mean? Stop no, it, it does, though. It still holds up. Uh, because it holds up because another lightweight from not too far uh, before then, Lou Ambers, actually, another example would have been Lou Jenkins versus Lou Ambers. Lou Ambers just couldn't just couldn't do anything with Lou Ambers, super great fighter, uh, had a style that was called him the Herkimer Hurricane because he had a very active, busy style. He and Henry Armstrong made for two incredible fights. But, um, you know, Lou Jenkins, for whatever reason, 
not incredibly skilled guy, but the sweet water, sweet water swatter, they called him and he could fucking punch. And you could be a great podcast and uh podcast subject because that dude lived a wild, wild did. life. Served served in the army, uh, fought in World War II. You know, I mean, like he, there was actually, I think I have the book, pretty sure I do. Then, what's that? Victoria's drunk. Yeah, yes, he was a big drinker, yeah. And and he had the fucking kryptonite for uh, Lou Ambers, so that's another example we could have brought up. But in any case, had one for um like Fritzy Zivik and Henry Armstrong. Yeah, there's a lot yeah, of them. There's a whole bunch of uh, examples, especially if we go back far, far. But no, I thought we covered a pretty good base overall. Um, you know, it's a it's a good starting point. But dude, I appreciate you doing your homework like always. Appreciate you bringing on the boxing history discussion. Always bringing the knowledge, man. Yeah, man. It's always a pleasure. And as always, I hope everyone enjoyed it. So totally. Well, if you did listen in, thank you so much. I hope you did enjoy, but subscribe on whatever podcast app you might listen in through or leave us a comment, a little rating. If you watch on YouTube, thank you as well. Subscribe there, leave a comment. We'll try to reply at some point. As far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram, but also it's so on Twitter, just like we are individually. My buddy Eris here is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. If you want to check out his fine collection of boxing t-shirts, it really is a fine collection of boxing t-shirts. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm also on Twitter. See, he's got one on right now. I'm also on there as Patrick M. Connor. So say hello. I'll say hi back. And Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one, everyone. Later, buddy. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.